Welcome back to Mathematically Speaking. I'm your host, Adam Alwell. Today's the last episode of Season 2. I was going to split this episode into two or three different parts originally, but since I'm already behind on releasing these episodes, I've decided to just make them into one super episode and end the season here. There are a few mathematicians left to talk about, and they all come together really well. It would feel strange to not talk about them all at the same time and leave gaps in between. So after this episode, we will leave Greece and head to Asia to study the mathematics of China and India. Now, while entire college courses could be taught about the mathematics of ancient Greece, I hope this season has shown something more about the geometry that we see in school. Now, part of the thesis of the show was that I promised I would make sure to dedicate entire episodes to the historical women of mathematics. So before I end this season, I think it's time that we have our first woman mathematician. In season one, we touched on how the first mathematicians were likely women, but we do not have their names because mathematics was not the institution it is now. It is just a tool used to get through the day. But we have finally have had enough time pass that we can name our first quote-unquote woman of math. Her name was Hypatia. But before we get to her, there are actually a few more men that I need to mention. And they do they do come before her historically, and her greatest work is why we know about them. So we can't talk about her without talking about them, so we'll have to actually begin with Apollonius of Perga. Known by his contemporaries as the Great Geometer, he was born near the end of the Hellenistic period. This is around the time where Alexander the Great was conquering the Persian Empire. What we know from his life comes from the prefaces of the books that he released. And these prefaces are actually letters that he had sent to friends who he had wanted to look over the book and edit them. These books that he was sending out were actually sections of one book called Conics. And it was the study of the mathematics of conic sections. This geometric text made up the geometric knowledge of conics up until the invention of analytic geometry which was invented by Descartes some centuries later. Now, this influence is massive, and his works inspired Islamic mathematicians during the Middle Ages, and upon rediscovery in the Renaissance, laid to the foundation of the scientific revolution. Now, if you're able to imagine things in your head, then this next session might be a bit easier for you to understand. If not, then in the show notes, there will be an animation depicting what I'm about to describe, which is what a conic section is. So you take a cone with a circular base facing down. You're going to take a piece of paper and put it through that cone perpendicularly, and the shape that is made in this intersection is a circle. Now take that piece of paper and make it intersect the cone at an angle. That shape that is in this intersection makes is an ellipse, or what we call an oval. Ellipse is the general word for it, since a circle is a special case of an ellipse with the radius being the same uh, length at all points on the perimeter. Now if we increase the angle of that paper so that the shape appears in the intersection doesn't connect at the end, we will get a parabola. Now finally, take that paper and make it intersect the cone nearly vertically, and the shape that appears in the intersection is called a hyperbola. You can imagine that if you took that oval and cut it in half, and then turn those halves over so the edges touch. That's what a hyperbola looks like. Again, see the show notes, and there will be a, a link toward to an animation um, describing all those intersections and those shapes. 
but these shapes have all their own unique properties, which would which is why the book Conics is comprised of seven sections, but there is evidence that an eighth section did exist. And since it is written in Euclidean format of basic definitions all stacking up on each other, I'm sure that this adds to some of the length. However, this is not the only thing that he wrote. In a work called Quick Delivery, he calculated limits for the true value of pi. These limits beat those of Archimedes who said that it was between 3 and 10 71sts and 3 and 1 7. If you punch those in on a calculator, they will hover around 3.14, etc. And you can see, you'll be able to see at which decimal point um, they differ from the actual value of pi. In addition to this, he also came up with a new planetary system of orbit that explained how the planet's orbit was actually elliptical rather than circular. Although this system was geocentric, this new idea of how the planets moved was correct. So he was able to come up with an elliptical orbit for all the systems if the Earth is at the center. Now again, we're going to be zooming past these, these men so that we can get to our star of the show. So moving, moving along, we are going to fast forward a few hundred years to Ptolemy. And he wrote the Syntactus Mathematica. And it was the astronomy reference book for over 1,200 years. The Islamic mathematicians came across it and were so impressed by it, and it was such a majestic mathematical text that they renamed it the Almagest. And it was the most complete book on astronomy until the scientific revolution when Copernicus came up with the heliocentric model of the universe. Now, while the heliocentric model was proposed before Copernicus, Aristotle's influence on the idea of the geocentric model influenced Ptolemy to stick with, this with, with that geocentric model. And this book is comprised of 13 sections, and much of it is just a table of chords. And chords are a pre precursor to trigonometry functions like sine, cosine, and tangent. So if you take a circle and place a triangle in it with one of the corners at the center, so that the legs of the triangle are the radius of that circle, the leg of the triangle that does not go through the center is the chord of that circle. And that angle made between those two legs that meet at the center of the circle, that angle, you would say, chord of that angle, is the length of that leg. Now the planetary model that Ptolemy stuck with used circles for the planet's orbits. And the data that he used in his book was observational data, so to match his model with his data, came up with something called epicycles. Epicycles are circles made within other circles, and there are up to 27 different kinds. So if you take a point moving uniformly around a circle, I mean, it's not speeding up in different parts. It's moving at the same speed all the way around. Now make a line from this moving point to the center of our circle. Taking the center of the circle and using that as a point to make circles, that will give you an epicycle. You could probably make this on your own with two pens and a piece of string. Uh, if this method did not map the planet, then or map the path of the planet, then you could add another point moving in a circle around a circle ad infinitum. Now remember that this episode is meant to highlight the work of Hypatia. I'm aware that I'm keeping brief my mentions of these mathematicians. That is not to lessen the importance of their work. These texts written by these men are revolutionary. And we have a text that was used as a reference for 12 centuries in the invention of trigonometry. 
accurate mappings of planets using nothing but a table of numbers built only upon observation, accurate in a geocentric model, that is. Like, my grandfather's college trigonometry book had a table of sine, cosine, and tangent, and it also had a table of chords. This stuff lasted forever. So please don't take my brief mention of it as an insignificance. But we do have one more person to get to before we can get to Hypatia. Diophantus. A lot of people talk about him as the father of algebra, and they do so because he used a symbol to represent the unknown variable that gets solved for, what we call x. He also used symbols to represent exponents of this unknown variable up to the sixth power. Now, if you remember at the beginning of this season, I said that powers greater than 3 did not make sense in a Greek sense because they had no conception of dimensions greater than 3. Diophantus' work represents a move away from this traditional Greek math math this traditional Greek mathematics. Even though there was no conception of dimensions higher than a third, third dimension, the abstraction from what is real to what is mathematically real started taking place with Diophantus, and there are two dis these two things are important, reality and mathematical reality, because I don't think they always mean the same thing. And for the culture of mathematics, this is very significant and crucial. He authored the book Arithmetica, which consisted of word problems, and what we now call Diophantine equations. These equations are those whose solutions are integers only, with no rational numbers allowed, so we can't have fractions to answer these the answer of these solutions, or the answer of these equations. These tend to be complicated, and I will go on more detail about them when I get to Descartes, because without without Arithmetica, we don't have Descartes. We don't have algebraic geometry. We don't have the Cartesian plane. The applications range from chemistry to physics to cryptography, along with the flexibility that many other topics in math that deal with the systems can be reframed as Diophantine equations. This book, I mentioned that it's a, it was a cultural shift from the Greek way of thinking. This book could be thought of as the invention of number theory. It, stepped, it looked at math in an arithmetic and an algebraic sense, just a, in a case study or a curiosity of what numbers can do on their own. Not what number in the, sen in the Greek sense of distance and length can do. But now we move on to the star of the show. The woman, the myth, and the legend Hypatia. She was born in Alexandria to Theon of, Ale to Theon of Alexandria, who was a philosopher and a professor at the University of Alexandria. And he did not agree with the role that his culture would have given his daughter, so he did as so he did as he would if she were his son, and taught her the skills of his trade. He tutored her in mathematics, philosophy, and astronomy. While we do not have record of it, of her inventing much math, we do have record that she edited and provided commentary on some of the most influential math texts ever written, the three that I mentioned above. She was a pagan. And during her time, Christianity was on the rise, and there was some tension between Neoplatonism and Christianity. But being the wonderful person that she was, 
she allowed Christians to attend her lectures, and she would have given open and she would have open dialogues with Christians. And there was a fondness of her among them, even though she was a pagan. This did not last long. She was as she was leaving uh, her her lectures for the day. She was approached by a mob and murdered. We're going to leave out the details of them because they are brutal. Subsequently, the University of Alexandria was burned to the ground, pagan temples, temples were ransacked, and the last hope for balance and peace between Christianity and paganism died with Hypatia. The city of Alexandria stopped being an intellectual hub, and Hypatia became a martyr for what happens when religious intolerance goes too far. But I'm not going to leave Hypatia's value in her death. Her life and her work is what makes her historically significant. We all have had the teachers or professors or coaches maybe who it was obvious that they were very good at what they do. You could tell that they were brilliant in their subject and could do it very well, but they could not teach it for the life of them. The skill of synthesizing information and making it relatable to people is a universally necessary skill. If you cannot communicate your ideas, then they lose some of their value. Even though we do not know much of her independent work, Ptolemy's Almagest, Apollinus's Conics, and Diophantus's Arithmetica. Her commentaries got added to the versions of these texts permanently and were preserved in Arabic translations. Her being able to understand these texts, which were written only to be understood by other mathematicians, and then breaking them down is why we still know about them today, why more math is able to be created. So much work relied on the Almagest and the Conics, she is why people like Descartes and Pascal will be able to have references to these texts centuries later. I hope you enjoyed Season 2. Season 3 will be released in the fall, and I look forward to some bonus episodes in the coming months to fill the gaps while I write Season 3. Thank you again for listening. Let me know on Twitter or our new Discord channel what, you, what your favorite episode of this season was and why. I'd love to be able to get to know you guys better on that Discord. Thank you for listening.